Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethlehem, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, his son, and Gilbert of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his own tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines, which was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it, said that, Sam, that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul and Gilbert. When the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Mishmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, and the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgad, and all the people followed him trembling. And he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgad, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a bond offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, Well, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Mishmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me in Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a word of And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgad to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about six hundred men. Saul, Jonathan's son, and the people present with them remained in guilty of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Mishmash. Then the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned over the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual. And another company turned to the road to beth And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Seboam, toward the wilderness. 
Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. But the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews made swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pin for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, the axes, axes, and the separate points of the goats. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of the Ishmael. Well, here is the... The second Sunday in our recent past, so we've had the opportunity to cover an entire chapter in one Sunday, so it's another great Sunday. Uh, Again, I say, this is the second time here recently that I've said this, that we don't get to do this often, but it's the second time recently that we've gotten to do this, walk through an entire chapter of Scripture, so I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Katie and I traveled in the morning to Sierra Vista. Uh, They were having a a walk to remember. Um, and this walk was designed because October is uh, Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Uh, and so this walk was organized in Sierra Vista, and Katie and I went, and we, and we walked in honor of uh, the, the child that we lost earlier this year, um, who we named Asher. And we walked in remembrance of Asher. Uh, and uh, that has been probably the greatest personal struggle and personal hurt for us um, just in the past year. And I know that there are many people hurting um, in our community and other communities. We have, we have a, a couple of friends. Who I hope that they will watch this sermon later. I'm going to share it with them um, because this text just presents the people of God with, with such a comfort. Not so much for Saul, but for us. We receive a great comfort in this text. Um, but they also lost a child here recently um, in the same way. Uh, and it hurts more than people realize. You know, There are other people who have different, different hurts. Uh, people who are suffering from brain injuries that they have or have had that are causing all sorts of problems for them. Um, people who come to this church are connected with, with this local body of believers that we, we pray for daily. And there's a lot of struggle there, a lot of hurts there. People who have, who have lost fathers and and brothers, people dealing with all sorts of sickness, all sorts of, of, of pain, some explainable and, and some not so explainable. And you have to wonder why God, who is sovereign, right, seems to work this stuff together. Why God seems to turn the pressure up in our, in our lives. Why God seems to allow His people to endure so much hurt in this world, uh, why we are placed in the circumstances that we are, that we are placed in that cause us to question God, um, or, or that even just cause us to wonder how God can be so good if He allows such 
such suffering, particular, particularly for his people, people who are dedicated to him, uh, people who are committed to him, people who are with the body of believers from week to week. And so this text is actually going to lead us to answer that question. As we dive in, we'll, we'll look here, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, and we'll just see the nature of humankind's labor. In verses 5 through 14, we, we will actually see Saul's malcontent. That's discontentment. We will see that from Saul. And in, and in verses 15 through 23, um, we, we will see that, uh, that uh, you know, God calls us to something real. There's a real calling upon our lives, a real, real sanctification, a per- perfecting of the people of God, a reason for a reason for pain and suffering. God is clear about this reason throughout His Scriptures. First, we'll see chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, the labor of humankind. And we'll just read verse 1, and then there's some explaining that I'll need to go into verse 1 before we continue through this passage. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now this morning already, you have heard from a different translation that read just a little bit differently. Saul reigned for one year, and in a second year, or in year two, uh, it, this, is, this is happening. And so there are two different versions of this verse that are out there in modern day translations. And both versions of this verse, or the different versions of this verse that are out there, seem to indicate a different sort of time frame that Saul has served as king over the nation of Israel before this, before this sin in his life or before he actually exhibits rebellion against, against God, before he shows himself to be this ravenous wolf that Samuel has already predicted. And the reason for this is because in the Hebrew, and I, I may have mentioned this early on in our study of 1 Samuel, in the Hebrew, um, or from the Hebrew into English, 1 Samuel is, is probably the most difficult books, uh, at least one of the most difficult books in the Old Testament to translate. And First Samuel is like this all the way through, particularly in chapter 1, and then here in chapter 13 and verse 1. And the reason this verse is particularly difficult for translators is because there are actually uh, no numbers. The 30 and the 40 are missing in the original Hebrew language. One in the first verse there is missing in the original Hebrew language. And so what translators have have done is they have poured over the rest of Scripture to figure out what number needs to be here because a number is supposed to be here. Now the ESV, as it is translated, it omits the number two. It says, well, if the Hebrew omits the number, we're omitting the number two. And so we know now why we have some people who are English Standard Version only, and I'm sticking to my guns, right? Um, But anyway... In this verse, the ESV will skip that, and it'll read something like, Saul was years old when he began to reign, and and he reigned and two years over Israel. So it just skips those numbers and leaves them out. In the NASB and in the NIV, it will read 30 years or 42 years, 30 years and 42 years there. And in the King James, of course, it says one year, uh, and then uh, after two years over Israel, he reigned uh, two years over Israel, or in the second year over Israel. And translation will read, translations will read in those different ways. But the numbers are missing. 
So what translators have done is they've gone into the text, they, they poured over the rest of Scripture to figure out what number actually needs to be there, the correct number to put there. Now the translators of the King James will argue this is just an implied one and two that goes here in this verse. The translators of the NASB have uh, poured over the Scriptures and they get to Acts chapter 13 verse 21 where the writer Luke or the New Testament author Luke has actually uh, poured over the Scriptures himself and is aware of the Scriptures and as he records this event in chapter 13 verse 21 of Acts he records Saul as being king over Israel for 40 years before this takes place and so the translators of the NASB have gone in they have found where a New Testament author has interpreted this text has gone to this text has given the correct number for this text and they have taken that and they have put it in the text and so scholars will disagree on where they land for those reasons either it's an implied one or the New Testament authors have described that Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned for 42 years over Israel so I think that the NASB probably has the, the closest to correct translation here. This is one of those instances even uh, in which we can't even go to the Septuagint and get clarification because the Septuagint omits verse 1 altogether. And so this text ends up being a very, very difficult text for translators to, to translate. But I think the best method is just to go into the New Testament, into Acts chapter 13 and verse 21 and say, okay, the New Testament writers, how long did they see Saul as reigning as king over Israel by this time? And then taking that information provided by the New Testament authors who are very familiar with the Old Testament and with this story, and just to see this is how they have described it. And so I don't know that I would study or use the King James to preach this text in particular. I think once again we see that the NASB holds true and the you know of course the ESV just records it as the Hebrew records it without importing any information which leaves us guessing just as much and so just keep in mind that parts of the scripture are very difficult for translators and that's why some translations will say something different from others here is what I notice here if the NASB is correct in its translation and correct in its time frame as it saw of course, 30 years old when he becomes king. Not having any children, which is another reason this is probably removed quite a bit from the time when Saul becomes king. It's probably, you know, 42 years after that because now he's had time to have a child and we see Jonathan in the story and it's the first time we see Jonathan in the story. And, and so it just creates time for that. Not only does that translation agree with the New Testament, but then it creates actual time for a son to be born and, and come of such an age where he can lead an army into, into battle. And so 42 years have have gone by, the text skips over 42 years of Saul's life and Saul's reign. Not being specific about the details within that 42 years. And I find this to be a very interesting detail in the scriptures because Saul is kind of a just kind of a huge character in the scriptures. The first king over Israel, the one who will be a ravenous wolf before David is, is given the throne in preparation for the Messiah, God in the flesh, to come and assume his own throne within his creation and reign over his, his people forever, right? On this symbolic, this physical throne within his own creation. So Saul is this big character. And here this jumps from when Saul 
becomes king, is confirmed in battle, and the nation is renewed under Saul. The text just seems to skip 42 years of Saul's life. Like during this 42 years, nothing so significant has happened that is worthy of being recorded in Holy Scripture for, for us to read. Now we remember Samuel's Revelation or God's revelation to Samuel when God reveals Saul to Samuel and, and says, Samuel, this is the guy. And God reveals to Samuel that this guy, Saul, will deliver my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This has not happened yet. And Saul is aware of this promise, right? So here he is, becoming king at age 30. And... For 42 years, Philistia is still there, and the people of Philistia are still there inhabiting the land, and, and God, in His providence, which we've been learning about God's providence, if we've been working through the text of, of 1 Samuel, God in His providence has, has not brought the people of Philistia against Israel, and He has not given an explicit command through Samuel to Saul to go and attack the people of Philistia. This this has not happened. And so maybe we can get a sense of Saul's frustration in his, in his old age. Maybe it's a lot like Abraham's frustration when Abraham turned 100 and still did not have the promised son. And so he took Hagar as a wife, right? Going ahead of, of God, trying to take God's work into his own hands. And, and we're going to see the same thing with Saul here. Look at verses 2 through 4 with me. Now Saul chose for himself, there's, there's no initiation from God, no movement of the Holy Spirit as described here in Scripture. Just, this hasn't happened yet. And so Saul is, is taking matters into his own hands. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. So Saul gathers 3,000 men, divides them into two companies. 1,000 men go with my son Jonathan. 2,000 men stay with me. We're going, to, we're going to make the plan of God happen. Good luck. Verse 3, Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So Jonathan goes with his company of 1,000 soldiers, and, and he goes and he crushes this garrison, garrison of Philistine, takes them by surprise. Verse 4, All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of Philistines. Now notice that Saul is the one here who receives the credit and not, not Jonathan. The garrison of Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. Odious. And the people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. So here we see, like, God has not done this work. And so Saul, like, takes it upon himself to be sure that the plan of God is accomplished. And God has already revealed that Saul will, will deliver Israel from the Philistines. This is God's words to and through Samuel as Saul is being initiated as, as king 42 years prior to this, if the translation of the NASB is indeed correct, right? God hasn't come through. 
So maybe he wants us to strategize and to develop this tactic and to figure this thing out. Jonathan, here's a thousand men, go attack this garrison. Of course, Jonathan succeeds. It's a sneak attack. Of course they succeed, right? But I wonder how often we, with good motives and with good intentions, try to rush ahead of you know God's plan. I mean, we... We witness this in various stages of life, right? A teenager tries to grow up too fast. We live beyond our financial means. We trade quality for quantity, or we sacrifice quality for quantity so that we can do more but it's it's not as effective not as not as deep as the church we we might even do stuff like this right like i know i have confidence i hope that it is god's plan to bless our church now how can we by human means get there and sometimes we ask that question how do we do this instead of trusting God to accomplish His own work and just focusing on the the directive that God has given us. Make disciples, love people, serve people. Don't trade quantity in place of quality. Or maybe I said that backwards. Don't, Don't trade. Yeah, no, don't trade quantity in place of quality. I said that correctly. And so we, like Saul, try and move the plan of God along by our own means. In this, we see the nature of of humankind's labor. This is a point of application here. Saul, he has served 42 years as as king. Nothing significant has happened. Um, He hasn't made any major steps forward um, that that are worthy of being recorded in the text of Scripture. And this is monotony, right? Uh, In my own life, my life, from week to week, just the day in, the day out, the grind of things, I do pretty much the same exact thing every week. Right, and I have the same schedule every week, and I can be interrupted from that schedule. I'm available, right? But as far as you know, church work goes, and my responsibilities go as the pastor of a of a local church, it's just a grind. And maybe you feel this way too. There's a grind, a, a, a thing that we do, a routine we get into from day to day, from week to week, just the same thing, over and over and over again. That's like the definition of monotony. Right? If you recall earlier in 1 Samuel, we saw this with Samuel. Samuel was doing the same thing from year to year, from day to day. He had the same circuit that he would travel and judge the people of Israel. And he did this for years until he was in his 40s, an old man, according to, to the text that we, that we read. If this is the case with like multiple people throughout the scriptures, now with Saul, just like it was with Samuel, I, I wonder if this is this is the design that God has for for people, right? Like why? And everybody, every single person on the face of the planet has this shared experience. My life seems monotonous. I feel like I'm doing the same thing every day. I feel like I'm doing the same thing 
every week and I'm not really making any big moves. I don't feel like I'm really climbing, you know, the ladder of success. You know, people say it's good to climb the ladder of success. It's good to make big, huge moves and leaps forward. And, and you want to see spontaneous, fast, quick growth. And if you don't see that growth, then you must not be doing what you, what you need to do. But the common experience seems to be like the opposite of that. Every single person experiences monotony in life. In fact, most of life as we live is almost defined by this monotony. The same was true for Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden, right? God gave them a job, and this is what they did. Tended the garden day after day, week after week, year after year. We don't know how long they were in the garden, but this is what they did. And so we actually see the nature of, of human service and the need for us to be content and why it's such a big deal here that Saul shows his malcontentment and gets in a hurry and gets in a rush and tries to move ahead of, of God, right? There's a need for Christian contentment in our lives. And why I think God does this or gives us lives that are filled with monotony, doing the same thing day after day and week after week and year after year, is because he wants us to see that this life is not about our glory, not about our achieving something amazing or making our, our name known. No, that is, that is his position, right? And so God gives us service in his kingdom, not so that we can be glorified, but so that he can be glorified in our service. And every Christian has a different place of service within within the body. And we get tired of monotony because we really like our glory. We really like to feel like, oh, I'm making so much progress here. But I don't, I don't think that's God's real design for our life. I think his design for our, our lives is contentment in the things that we do, simple living, dedication to the things that he has called us to. And in verses 5 through 14, we, we see Saul's malcontentment. Saul, he's 72 years old now, and malcontent. God hasn't done this yet, so I'm going to get it done. <coughs> now, the Philistines, in response to Jonathan's sneak attack, right? Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Now let's think together. Saul has called 3,000 men, given 1,000 to Jonathan, kept 2,000 for himself, separated them into two companies like that. So you have 3,000 against 36,000, and the Philistines have technology that the Israelites do not have. These are not good odds. And it gets worse. And people, like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance, and they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, listen to this, Saul's not even here with Jonathan. That's describing only Jonathan's company. But Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. And so it's not 36,000 versus 3,000. It's, it's 36,000 coming against Jonathan's company of 1,000. 
the odds are even worse than maybe we pictured before. And then the men who are with Saul, who are, we must march against this army because they're coming against Saul's son. They're coming against other Israelites now in response to what we have done, in response to Jonathan's sneak attack. Now we're going to have to march against this army, and this is scary. And so we're trembling in our armor. I don't even know that they had armor, right? But we're trembling, fearful. So we see this, like this vicious cycle, right? We move ahead of God. Saul moved ahead of God to accomplish something that God said God would accomplish, right? We're going to take it upon ourselves to accomplish the plan of God. And then there's this retaliation, and the resulting circumstance is worse than the initial circumstance than the first circumstance. And so it's like we we try so hard to make the things of God happen in our lives at home to try and stop a rebellious teenager from rebelling and we by any means we can, right? At work trying ourselves to to get the job we want, doing anything we can to get the job we want or to get a promotion we want or, or whatever. And in, in the church, not taking the time to really think about things and evaluate things and to, and to say, okay, God, how can we be obedient to you? Instead, we jump immediately to, how can we get more people here? God, how can we accomplish your plan for evangelism and missions in our church and, and make sure that we see the, the fruit of this by by the means we can come up with. And, what I, and I have seen this happen over and over again, but in the Scripture it is confirmed, right? So when we try to move ahead of God to make the plan of God happen or to make the, the blessings of God happen in our own lives, the resulting circumstance is usually worse than the initial circumstance. And it's something I think worth thinking about. Verse 8. Now he, this is Saul, waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And so Saul, of course, we see this instruction in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. We've, we've been there where Samuel says, this is what will happen. It is my responsibility, Saul, to offer the sacrifice on your behalf, not because it will get God to do something for us, but because this is the way we worship God in a way that is honoring, in a, in a way that is according to his own instructions for us. And Saul does something completely different because, again, we see his malcontent, we see his impatience. And so he doesn't even wait for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice, even though Samuel is, you know, Samuel's taking a little bit longer than he should be, but that's no excuse to do things the way that God has, has said to do them, right? We see this malcontent, and we see this, we see this impatience coming from, from Saul. Verse 10, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And in verses 11 and 12 here, Saul tries to explain himself to Samuel. 
But Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And so this is like, oh, I made a bad decision. Oh, I got ahead of God. Oh, I tried to do things on my own. I tried to accomplish the plan of God on my own. And I realized what I did. And so I had to, to make sure that I checked off this box, asking God's favor after I've already initiated this conflict, asking God's favor. It's easier, Samuel, for me to ask forgiveness than it is for me to ask permission. I know we've heard that one before, haven't we? <laughs> Samuel is reprimanding him and, and he is defending his own action. Defending his own action. Which is very, very interesting to, to me. So Saul has found himself in the midst of this trial, right? But the first trial was... I'm getting old. God hasn't said, God hasn't done what he, what, he, what he said he would do through my reign as king. The second struggle came as a, a result of Saul's action. The first, oh, now the Philistines are coming against me and I need to figure out a way to fix this. And Saul is enduring quite the trial here. And we could say, we could think, if I could put myself in, in Saul's Shoes, which we can't, but we can imagine that we're maybe in a similar circumstance, right? What would I do? And many people would do this, the same thing. Oh, I made a mistake. I've got to try and fix this. And then this is just a, a vicious cycle. By trying to fix it, we make another mistake that takes us deeper down the rabbit hole. And oh, we've got to fix this. And I can still fix this. And then we just keep making mistakes. And it pulls us like all the way away from Christ where it feels like that. A few weeks ago, one of our elders here, Tom, preached from James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. And I was drawn to this text again as I looked at this passage. like, God, why? Why, why do you do this to people? God, why do you... Why do you at least allow us to go through such suffering, such pain, such trials? Why do these trials exist in our life? What are you doing here with this? And listen to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. <laughs> Consider it all joy. Okay. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Various trials means any kind of trial. What we see Saul experiencing here in our text for today in our lives as we experience financial trials, as we experience failure at home or at work or in ministry as the, as the church, as people leave us or forsake us or, or turn their backs on, on us, when, when there are family problems, when we are struggling against addiction, when we lose loved ones, 
when there's something wrong physically that just can't be fixed and the doctors can't figure this thing out, when, when there is loss of a child. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, and so James here equates trials to the testing of our faith. When we endure trials, James is saying, this is a test of your faith knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And notice the wording there. It's not the testing of your faith might produce endurance or the testing of your faith could produce endurance. No, it says the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is a guaranteed thing for the people of God. Verse 4, And let endurance, which which is always produced during times of trial, right? for the people of God and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing so there we have just the purpose explicitly clearly stated in the text of scripture that God brings trials in the lives of of people now, there are a couple things in this passage that are just a little bit vague that could be interpreted in a weird way if we don't look at context. And the first thing is that it produces endurance. What does James mean when he says that trials produce endurance? Does he mean that God will help you make it through? Or does he mean something deeper and more meaningful than merely that? It's nice to think that Christ is working our trials together in such a way that he is just helping us to make it through, helping us to survive on this earth. That's a nice thought, but I think James is getting at something deeper, more meaningful, greater here, something that can actually bring joy to our lives. You know, mere survival isn't something that necessarily produces joy in our lives. It's just like, all right, made it through that time. Thank you, Jesus. No, Christ is doing something bigger than this in our lives. Endurance concerning what? Endurance in what? We read down to verse 22 and listen to this in contrast to not having endurance, in contrast to lacking wisdom, lacking knowledge, lacking understanding, and in contrast to, to giving in to sin. James writes this in chapter 1, verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word. The word. Which word? The scriptures. The law of God. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so up in verse 3, he says, the testing of your faith produces, guaranteed, produces endurance. This is for the children of God. He addresses my brethren there in verse 2. And so this is not for people who are outside of Christ. This is for people who are in Christ. It does produce endurance. means that it produces endurance concerning the Word of God, the law, such that a testing of our faith actually brings us into greater obedience to God's law. And this endurance bringing us, bringing us into greater obedience to God's law, when it has its perfect result, 
actually makes us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's the process of sanctification for the Christian. That the Christian may come into full conformity with Christ and into full obedience of God's Word, particularly as it is given in the law. And we talked a little bit last week about why the law is given for Christians and and the two purposes the law has. The purpose on the front end is that it reveals our unrighteousness, reveals that we fall short of God's glory, brings us into grace. But then those who come into grace, those who come to know Christ, the law serves this second purpose. And I say this as a point of reminder from last week, right? The second purpose is our sanctification, our being made perfect, our being made complete. And that's the purpose that most Christians miss. They say, oh, I'm saved. The law isn't important anymore. And the pointings of the whole text of Scripture indicate otherwise. The law is still important. It works for our sanctification now. So when we experience trials, if these trials bring us into greater obedience to God's law, then we are in Christ. And if the trials we experience on this earth do not bring us into greater obedience to God's law, the indication of the text is that we are not in Christ. And that is a devastating truth for some, and it is a great encouragement for others. That this is the purpose of the trials that we endure, that we go through on this earth. And they do produce that within the people of God. I've gone back and forth on whether or not I think Saul actually has salvation. And this is like a great debate in the theological community of people who love to have these sorts of conversations. Was Saul saved? And some people will say, yes, because the Holy Spirit was moving in his life. And we've seen that twice in the text of Scripture now. And the Holy Spirit was moving him to worship. And then the Holy Spirit was moving him to war. Well, brothers and sisters, the direction of this text, Saul doesn't just sin once here. He's a ravenous wolf, according to God's word through the prophet Samuel, right? And here he, in essence, just shows his true colors. And his true colors aren't that beautiful, according to the law of God, right? And he is tested and drawn into sin and greater rebellion against God. And this becomes this vicious cycle of pride in Saul's life leading to greater and deeper sin. And he continues to further himself from the law of God. And so if we take Scripture seriously regarding God's work of sanctification, then it's very difficult not to conclude that Saul's He really doesn't belong to God in this eternal, everlasting level. I mean, to make it clear, the text isn't explicit about that, right? With with Eli and Eli's sons, the text was explicit. These guys are children of Satan. They do not belong to God. The text was explicit there. Here, it's not that explicit. But we extrapolate from just the doctrine of sanctification in the Christian life. Those who are in Christ experience trials, and as a result of those trials come in conformity to God's law. And that is not what we see with Saul here. 
Here is what this means for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think we can take great comfort in this, believing in the power of the Holy Spirit and the movement of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not limited in the work that He does. The Holy Spirit's work is not limited to just bringing believers to salvation, right? The Holy Spirit is present just as God is present in all places at all times. The Holy Spirit is doing the effectual work that the Father has ordained and the Son has revealed, and He is doing this work in all nations, at all times, and all peoples. In the midst of both the Christian and the non-Christian, the elect and the non-elect of God, the Holy Spirit's work is so much more encompassing than we usually talk about in a church setting. And that the Holy Spirit of God is interacting in some way with both those who belong to Christ and those who do not. Such that God the Father is glorified in and through all things. The Holy Spirit is awesome. And awe-inspiring. Oh, I am proud to be a preacher empowered and enabled and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. There a word meaning you have made a moral mistake. You have... You have done a grievous thing against God. You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And last week we talked about these if-then statements, the conditions of the law, right? How on the front end, the law is meant to reveal the unrighteousness of people that no one can keep these conditions. Here, Saul just, he just proves that he does not have a regenerate heart. He is still a slave to the unrighteous nature, the nature of, of humanity. And because he is a slave to his unrighteous nature, he chooses sin, and he chooses sin again, and he chooses sin again instead of being conformed to the law of God. And Samuel makes that very clear. Here you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. If your heart was regenerate, if God had chosen you to be king over Israel forever, if God had chosen you as his own, if you had a, had a, had a heart that was after God's own heart you would not have broken this command. And God would have established your kingdom forever. Saul. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Notice the past tense there. This is already decided. God has already chosen this man after his own heart. We know him as King David. The Lord has appointed, again, past tense, He's already appointed David as ruler over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And there, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you, Samuel, even though God is exercising His providence in every detail of this story, Samuel still recognizes that Saul 
has had the responsibility to keep the command of God, even though he was unable to, right? Even though he didn't have this new nature. And the fact of the matter is, we talk about our nature, and we are all slaves to our nature. That just simply means this. We choose the things we want to choose. And by nature, we don't really desire the things of God. We desire other things, things of the world. And so those are the things that we choose, even if we have this great ability to make it look religious or, or Christian, right? Those are the things that we choose. And so we are responsible for the decisions we make because we really are making those decisions. We're just choosing according to our nature. What it takes for salvation and what it takes to follow God is the Holy Spirit coming in and regenerating our hearts, changing our desires, subjecting our will to the will of God so that we then choose the things of God. We are responsible for our actions. In verses 15 through 23, we continue to see this vicious cycle of pride. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin and Saul, numbered the people who were present with him, about, about 600 men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah. I almost said Oprah. It's not Oprah. Oprah isn't present in the Old Testament. It's Ophrah. And the land of Shual. And another company turned toward Beth Haron. And another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears, and we don't see swords or spears with them. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hose. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they, the people, were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And so here you have farmers who have, because of Saul's sin, because he is a ravenous wolf, are now coming against a technologically advanced army with garden tools that have been sharpened. And this is where the story for today ends. Now God predicted that this would happen, remember, as Samuel shared about what Saul would be this ravenous wolf in chapter 8, verses 10 through 22. And God has been honest about the, the type of king that Israel should have or would have according to his own design. And, and he prophesied about that as early as Deuteronomy chapter 17. And Saul was not 
that, what was prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 17. In fact, in Genesis chapter 49, God revealed as early as Genesis chapter 49, God revealed that the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of which Saul was a member, right? The tribe of Benjamin would be a ravenous wolf. And it would be the tribe of Judah from which David came that would be this rightful heir, this rightful king. And so none of this catches God by surprise. And God has indeed been working all of this together from at least Genesis 49, if not from before the foundation of the world. Right? But this is where our story ends this morning. And next week we will pick up in chapter 14. Now here is the, the main thing that I want to say today. Through our suffering, through our loss, through our trials, through our circumstances, God is doing something bigger than just getting us through it. Now he is working those things together very purposefully, very directly, so that His people are conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, and come into greater obedience to the law. When we try and fix things on our own, or when these trials in our lives reveal that maybe we don't know Christ like we thought we did, we end up in a metaphorical way, usually preparing for war with garden tools. we end up in a, a worse place than where we started. Instead of being conformed to the law of God which was given to us for our good. And the Messiah, the one who will assume this throne forever when we get to the Gospels. And if we're talking from the perspective of our own time, who has already taken this throne perpetually and forever. And the Messiah, we have greater peace, greater understanding. As part of a healthy local body of believers, we have greater understanding because the Scriptures are exposited and the Word of God is exposed. That's what exposited means, exposed, so that it exposes our hearts and so that we are conformed more to the image of Christ and brought into greater obedience to, to, God's, to God's law. And here is the result according to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And many peoples will come and say the time of the Messiah. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, not ours, His. Completely opposite of what we see with Saul. And that we may walk in His paths. Whose paths? God's, according to His law, according to His instruction, not what Saul was doing. For the Law, the source of God's ways, the source of God's plan, or at least where that is revealed to us, right? For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We have received this word from Jerusalem. This, is, this, is, this has happened. And the word will go forth from Jerusalem. And He, God, will judge between the nations something He is currently doing and will render decisions for many people something He, was, he is currently doing. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares. 
the opposite direction when the Messiah gets a hold of us and the Holy Spirit is doing His work in our lives and in the life of the local church. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. This is the result when God's sanctifying work is complete in Christ. And this is something that we are brought to in Christ as we have faith in Him. And as we are made perfect and complete, let this be our prayer that we are conformed to the image of Christ and brought into greater and greater obedience to God's law as individuals, as families, and as a local church. And let us pursue that actively because that is the purpose God has for working together all of the trials in our lives and all of the trials we experience as a local church.